on in and grab a seat. We are going to go ahead and get started. How are you guys doing today? All right, praise the Lord. We're glad to be in the house of the Lord today. Um, we're going to do something just a little bit different. We're going to open up in a word of prayer uh, right now uh, before we get started, and then we'll, then we'll get into our study. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do love you so much, and, and as we look at this topic today of, of your love for us and our love for you and others, um, Lord, we pray that you just teach us. We pray that your word um, directs itself into our lives where we need it. And, and Lord, the, the, your Holy Spirit does the work that only he can do to convince and convict us of where, where we need that as well. And so, Lord, we just um, we pray that you teach us today. We pray that everything that is said is true to your word. We pray that um, the, the whole day is, is honoring and glorifying to you. Lord, we do love you, and, and we're so thankful for the opportunity we have to be here this morning, to be together as a family, as a body, and uh, Lord, look forward to, to seeing what you're going to do in our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John 13. Last week we started our summer series on the love of God, and we looked at the story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. And out of that story came a description of biblical love that included four things. It included a command, it included a cost, a consecration, and a confidence. And over the next four weeks, starting today, the next it'll actually take five weeks because we're going to have a guest speaker next week, but over the next five weeks, we're going to look at those four aspects of biblical love in more detail. We're going to break them down uh, one by one. So today we're going to be looking at the first one. Today we're going to be looking at the command of love, and that is the title of today's message. But before we get into this too far, we have to solve a problem. And the problem has to do with our definition of love. Because by definition, if you can't see biblical love, then it's not there. And I say that because when the Bible talks about love, it is not referencing emotions and feelings. You see, we have messed up our love by watching too much TV. And you say, I love chocolate, and I love to go shopping, or I love the browns, or even better, something that makes more sense, I love the chiefs. Reigning MVP, but I don't know, whatever. Um, and in a sense, that's okay, because that's our culture. But you have to know that when you say those things, you are not speaking in biblical terms. You're speaking in terms of this world system. So God doesn't understand what you're talking about. We saw this last week, but in 1 John 4, 8, the Bible says, He that loveth not, knoweth not God, knoweth not God, for God is love. So that means any legitimate, any discussion of love has to start with God if it is talking about legitimate love. Because God is love. So by definition, any, any discussion of the word love has to start with God. And every other use of the word love that does not agree with God's understanding of love 
is, is by definition, it's made up of men and it's something that we've just adopted. And, and let's just be honest about it, we've adopted a lot of false definitions of love. That's why you hear people talking about falling out of love. And you hear them say, I don't, I don't love her anymore, or I don't love him anymore. Well, that is not love in the context of the Bible. So let me show you what is. And when it comes to love in the Bible, the New Testament has two primary Greek words that are translated as love. And then there are two other Greek words for love that are actually not found in the Bible, but they're worth mentioning. And I want to go through these very quickly and explain to you how they relate to our English usage, because I think that will help us solve our definition problem. Now, now before I go through this, I want to be very clear, and I want to point out that you do not have to have an understanding of Greek to understand the Bible. I do not have any understanding of Greek whatsoever. I only know how to use a Strong's Concordance. And being able to use a Strong's Concordance is where I'm getting uh, what I'm about to tell you. But the reason why I'm doing this is, is I want to relate this to our English usage because when we say love, we have different meanings as well. When I tell you that I love you, I mean it. But I mean it differently than when I tell Jennifer, my wife, that I love her. When I say that I love the Chiefs, I mean it differently than when I tell my kids I love them. And so context determines meaning. And that's absolutely true in our Bible as well. But I want to lay this foundation for you so that when you're reading your Bible, it, it makes it just a little bit easier for you to pick up on the context. So four Greek words for love. First, there's eros. This is the state of being in love. Now, interestingly, eros is a Greek word for love that is not actually used in the New Testament. But I say that it's interesting, and I point it out because this is the word for love that we use most often in English. Now, now many times the better English word to use is lust, but we use love in place of lust very often. So eros is the sensory pleasure of love. This includes emotions and feelings. And when we use the word love many times, this is really what we're referencing. This is the kind of love the world's music is made up of today. Love on the radio is used as a synonym for lust and is connected to physical contact and physical desires. And so that's eros. That's first. Then second, there's storge. Now this is the natural affection among those who are related. Now so this one's very easy. This is simply family love. This is love with the least demands because all you have to do to be included in this love is to be part of the family. Right? You may not even like them, but you love them because they're blood. <laughs> now this one isn't found directly in the Bible, but, but there are some, there, there are some uh, uses of it indirectly. I'll, I'll explain one of those to you in a second. Then third, we have phileo. This is love between friends. Now, this is used extensively in the Bible. Not extensively. That's, that's the wrong word. It is, this is used in the Bible. This is brotherly love. This is where we get our word Philadelphia. So phileo is a love based on familiarity. You see it in places like 1 Thessalonians 4.9. But it's touching brotherly love. 
phileo, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And Romans 12, 10, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Now, in, in interestingly, at least interesting to me, here in Romans 12, 10, that phrase, be kindly affectioned at the very beginning of that verse. That is, that is a combo of phileo and storge, the family love. That's, so that's what I said. It's not used directly in the Bible, but it is used indirectly. Um, but the point is, the brotherly love in this verse is that, that phileo. It's also translated as holy kiss. So we saw that in 1 Corinthians 16, 20. It's in other places in your Bible. When Paul said to greet one another with an holy kiss. And Jeff talked about when he came through that passage how in many cultures that is how people greet each other, including men to men and women to women. So in th those verses, the Bible is saying, greet each other with brotherly love. It's a love of friendship. But because it is a love of friendship, it is a, lo uh, it is a love that is tied to at least a certain degree of selfishness. Because in, in phileo, you connect with a person because of shared interest and activities, and it's it's based on how they treat you. You're not going to be friends with someone that every time you see them, they treat you poorly. So our, our English synonym would be like. We get along, we are compatible, we are friends. We want to be around each other because we like each other. That's phileo. But when it comes to describing God's love, 100% of the time, by the way, in the Bible, there's only one word that is used. That is agape. Agape is taking the initiative to act in someone else's best interest regardless of the personal cost. You see, when it comes to the distinguishing mark of a Christian, agape love is unique. Because unlike eros and unlike phileo, agape has nothing to do with what the other person does for you or does not do for you. Eros is tied to meeting my physical satisfaction. Phileo is tied to how I'm being treated emotionally. But agape is God's love. It acts for the betterment of someone else without any demand or expectation for anything in return. It's a love that does not have to have insurance against heartbreak before it loves. It is a free grace love because it is given as a gift. And when it comes to the love that we are commanded to show, according to Genesis 22 and the rest of the Bible, this is it. And we are to direct this type of love in two directions. We are to direct it upward, and we are to direct it outward. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So you ought to love the Lord with all you have got. You should love him passionately, personally, and purposefully. That is heart, soul, and might. In some other places, when this, when this verse is, is translated, it's mind. So that's the first direction. We are to direct it upward. But then second, Leviticus 19, 18 says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So we are to love God, and we are to love people. That is what is called, and you might know as, the great commandment. And you might know it as the great commandment because that is what Jesus called it. 
when the Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up in that, that last week before his crucifixion. They're asking him a number of questions, tempting him, trying to get him to say something wrong. Just so, I mean, they had already decided. Listen, they had already rejected him. They had already decided they were going to crucify him. They would just like him to make it easier for them. They wanted to get him to say something that they could justify what they had already decided to do. And so they, they, they ask him what was the greatest commandment of the law. And, and, and you have to understand the context, cultural context. If he said anything against Moses, th- listen, Moses was their man. And, and, and it was going to get him in trouble. And his response is perfect. He referenced the two verses we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. You find this in Matthew chapter 22. It's also in some of the other Gospels, but Matthew 22 is kind of the main one. Verses 34 through 40. Let's look at it together. It says, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together, which is just awesome, because they're all coming up to him, the different groups. And, and he's putting them to silence. He's making them speechless with his answers and his responses. So I, that's, that's just cool. Verse 35, then one of them, which was a lawyer, Ask him a question, tempting him, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So this is what we refer to as the great commandment. It is, it is to love God, and it is to love people. It is to love your neighbor. Now, now, just very quickly, let me give you a definition, just so you understand. So, as we, if you were in the 9 a.m. service this morning, you, you learned that words matter. Okay, so it says to love your neighbor. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean the person living right next to you? Well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> neighbor in the Bible has a specific meaning. In the Old Testament, it meant countrymen. It meant Israelite. They were to love their Jewish brethren as themselves. Well, neighbor in the New Testament means Christian. All right, so, so, so just understand what we're saying. We're saying that we don't love the lost world. Of course we love the lost world. It's just different. The love we're going to talk about today is to di- be displayed right here amongst ourselves. Okay, so... In the same way, God displayed agape love to the world. It only applies effectually to those who accept it. Okay, so, so I just want you to understand that. And so when you look at, when you consider everything we're talking about today, I, I just want you to consider the, the context and the meaning. Because even, in, even amongst Christians, there are Christians that we are instructed to treat as non-Christians. It's a lost world. So we have to understand exactly who we're talking about and what we're meaning. But Jesus says these two concepts of loving God and loving people are so all-inclusive that the rest of the Bible, the entire Old Testament, wrote on those two things about love. Do these two things and you fulfill it all. And we are to do the same things as well. God has given us it's, it's, it's in the book of Matthew, but God has given us, it applies to us as well, the great commandment. And we are to live out the great commandment through the great commission. And we'll talk more about the great commission in coming weeks. But for today, we are to love God with all we got, 
And, and we do that by loving each other with agape love, with God's love. So to love your neighbor as yourself is to love your neighbor in light of the new love that you have for God. So when we look at love, we just need to clarify our definitions. And we need to understand all this. So just to, to break it down a little bit further, let me explain to you how this might play out in a couple's relationship. All right, when a couple meets, there's typically a physical attraction. And eros takes over. So infatuation is the kind of love that comes to the front. And then if the relationship proceeds and they begin to get serious, phileo enters the picture because they like to go out together, they like to spend time together, they develop a deep friendship. But as the couple moves towards marriage, God is concerned that agape becomes the, do the, the dominant definition of love, at least for the husband-to-be. Hold, hold with me on that. And as Christians, we are under obligation to love one another with this same love. This is the command of love. And listen, it is a command, but it is also one of the greatest opportunities that we have in this church. And what I mean by that is we get to love people that we wouldn't have even necessarily chosen to be with if it were left up to us. So the point is, we get to live out the great commandment right here, in, the, in this room, with the people in this room. Through, through an unselfish love to other brothers and sisters in Christ that God has brought together. All because we love Him. and We show Him we love Him when we love each other. So we say we love God all the time. Loving God and loving people go together. The great commandment are tied into one. So we show him that we love him when we love each other, and that really is a great opportunity. But, it, but like I've said, to be able to do it right, we have to understand these definitions. We have to understand the command that's been given. And it brings us to our main text this morning, which is John 13, 34. Let's look at it together. It's one simple verse. Jesus is speaking. In John 13, 34, and he says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love, that is agape, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. That's it. It's one simple verse, but in this one simple verse, we get two major points that we need to understand if we want to fulfill the great commandment of loving God and loving people. And our first major point this morning regarding great commandment love is biblical love is a non-negotiable command. It's a non-negotiable command. This obviously goes with everything we've already been talking about, but, but you have to get this. Okay, so we saw last week, with, our com with the command to love, it comes our choice of obedience. God's given us all a free will. We get to decide. We get to choose whether we are going to obey or not. But here's what you can't do. You can't negotiate with God the details of the command. You don't get to pick the parts you like. You don't get to negotiate the terms. Or you don't get to just love the people you like. Look at the verse again. It's very specific. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us, and that's how we are to do it. There are no other options. 
And listen, this kind of love that God is talking about in this verse in Matthew chapter 22, the kind of love that we ought to be exerting is a love that is non-negotiable because it can be commanded to exist. You see, this is not the case with Eros. Eros is, is I want you because I like what I see. This is not the case with Phileo because Phileo has self-interest built into it. So Eros and Phileo both have selfishness automatically inherent in them. That is not true of biblical love. And the thing that makes this type of love a, command, a commandable love is that it can be done even if you don't feel like doing it. Even in the face of opposition and obstruction. Because it is not dependent upon your feelings. This is what we have to understand. We have so incorporated the world's definition of love, we miss this completely. It's not even unfair to, for God to ask it of us. I mean, of course it's not. But I say that because in the sense that it doesn't have to do with your feelings. See, biblical love does the will of God in such a way that it even applies to somebody unworthy. And even if it comes at your own expense. Even if you don't feel like it. And this message isn't only about marriage, but it obviously applies there. And I'm sure it will come as no surprise that this is the type of love that God has commanded the husbands to show to their wives. As husbands, we are to love our, lives, our wives with a, that agape love, with sacrificial love. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. How? Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We all know that. And we are to do that even when, in our own eyes, our wives aren't deserving of that, just as Christ did for us. Now what com might come, as a little bit of a surprise, is that the love in which the wives are commanded to love their husbands is not agape. It's phileo. You find this command in Titus 2. Titus 2, verse 4. This is the one time the Bible says for wives to love their husbands. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. You see, wives are not commanded to love their husbands like Christ loved the church. We are. That's on us, fellas. The ladies are commanded to come alongside, to buddy up and support, to encourage as a true friend does. But that doesn't get you completely off the hook, ladies, because guess what? You are to do that even when we don't deserve it. So your love is still to be sacrificial. It's just a different calling. But the ultimate issue is that if he or she never again does anything right, you are still to love in the way that God has called you to love. And like I said, this is possible because you can do it whether you want to or not. Because it is simply a decision. And in fact, this love is so commandable that in Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Well, how do you do that? He, go, he goes even further. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Okay, now, again, we have to understand context. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the, the doctrinal context of Matthew 5 is millennium. 
It is, it is a time of rest, which, which we don't have time to get into here, but it's quite interesting that in a perfect environment with God ruling, there's still enemies. And that's just something else to think about. But, so, so this, this verse doesn't apply to us directly today in this context. So when we talk about enemies, enemies has a definition in the Bible. It doesn't apply directly to us, but the reason why I bring it up is it's still the same type of love. It's still a commandable love, and I still want to ask you, are you even doing that for your husband or your wife right now? That maybe you're a little bit frustrated with, but do you pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you? Are you even doing that for people you say you love? We're not even talking about enemies that the verse talks about. Do you treat your child that way even if they've rebelled against you? You say, I don't like them for what they're doing. Well, praise the Lord, you're not commanded to like. Now go ahead and love. And this is really where the rubber meets the road with this point. Because we can typically agree on this sort of thing. I mean, you're not going to argue with me too much that you're supposed to love others. This is a pretty clear command. But when it comes to the practice of this principle, that's where you want to negotiate. So I, that's why this point, this is a non-negotiable command. But we want to negotiate. Because it doesn't make any sense in our logical mind. And when you allow yourself to think through the mind of the natural man, that old nature that is still with you even after being saved, what I'm telling you does not make sense. And you think, well, if I do that, if I love them in this sacrificial way, then I'm, I'm just going to become a doormat. And they're going to walk all over me. They're not going to love me back in this same way. And even if I do it, I don't even mean it. Even if I obeyed, my heart would not be in it. And listen, you think that way sometimes. And, or, and I, I know you think that way sometimes because I think that way sometimes. But we think that way because we don't understand love as defined by the Bible. And we don't have a proper understanding of the great commandment. You see, you don't love the other person because they're lovable. You love the other person because you love God. And maybe they're not worth it, or they're not worthy, but God is. John 14, verse 21 says, And he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And this is the great commandment, by the way. If you keep his commandments, he loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Then in verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love them, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That's how deep this love relationship runs. At the core, it's not even really about you and the other person. At the core... It is about you and God. And you say, well, that sounds a little weird. Well, well because what you have to understand is that if you are trying to love the other person through your own love, it is always going to break down at some point. But if you are loving them through the love that you have for God, and more importantly, love 
from God, there's always power in that. And even if they don't reciprocate like they should, God will be honored, and therefore, you can have peace. That's what John 14 said. But you can only get there if you keep this non-negotiable commandment. Listen, this isn't something Jesus mentioned once or twice. It is over and over and over. Just one example. Three verses in John chapter 15. Verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, These things I command you, that you love one another. So if you do this, Regardless of how anybody else is treating you, your relationship with Jesus will be right. Because if you are loving them, you are allowing God to do his will through you. And when you are simply allowing God to do his will through you, even if nobody else recognizes it, Jesus is pleased. So that means true biblical love is a command related to God's will, and not related to our satisfaction. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to say that one more time, because that was good if you didn't hear it. You should, you, should, you should make note of this. True biblical love is a command related to God's will, and not a feeling related to our satisfaction. Now, it can be, and in the right relationship, it should be a feeling. But it doesn't, my point is, it doesn't have to be a feeling of affection in order for the action of charity to exist. And I hope that makes sense to you. If it doesn't, let me explain it this way. So we, we've talked about the marriage relationship. In the context of your marriage, you should feel all the love. There should be eros. There should be phileo. There should be agape. But the command is for men, agape, for women, phileo. Both sacrificially. That doesn't mean the other shouldn't be there. It doesn't mean one replaces the other. No, they all should be there. But even when they're not, you still do your part. You still do what you're commanded to do. And you can do it because you do it by a decision. You decide that you're going to do it. And you obey it, and you don't try to negotiate it away. How good are we at negotiating away things in our mind? Negotiating away clear principles of the Bible. And we justify how we want to, to, to determine what the Bible actually has to say instead of just listening to what it actually has to say. And so we negotiate. We negotiate with God. We negotiate with ourselves. But, but that's not what this, this love is. This love means that you love the person sitting right next to you even if you kind of wish they were sitting in a different pew. Because love is an act of your will to do the will of God toward another person. And, and you don't necessarily have to go out to lunch with them afterward. I mean, maybe you do. I don't know. But you don't necessarily have to go out to lunch with them when we're done here in a little bit. You just do have to love them. Because that's biblical love and that's God's will and you are commanded to do it that way. I don't know what else to tell you. Listen, I wish I didn't have to say it because sometimes, too many times, I don't love this way. But it's biblical love, and it's God's will, and like I said, we're commanded to do it this way. We looked at this verse last week, 
But 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Listen, his commandments, according to the Bible, are not a burden or a trouble. So quit thinking they are. Again, these are decisions that you make. Quit thinking it is so hard to love this person. Well, that's not from the Lord. No, it may be hard to like that person, but it shouldn't be hard to love them. Because if you say you love God, I'm sorry, you cannot separate the two, loving God from loving people. And you know you are loving God when you obey Him and you keep His commandments. And when you apply that obedience to God to another brother or sister in Christ, then you are loving them. And when you do this, you will find that it it wasn't really a problem to do at all. The only problem was you giving up your pride to get to this point of commanded love. But when you apply the word of God to your own life and then you apply it to your neighbor's life according to the way the Bible defines it or your spouse's life, you have a freedom and ease of living that you've never had before. Because do you know why so many of us are in relationships that don't work? Do you know why there is so much pain and turmoil even in Christian marriages? It's because we have adopted the world's definition of what constitutes love, and therefore, we have adopted the world's way of reacting. So instead of applying the will of God, we apply the happiness of man. That's the problem. If it doesn't make us happy and satisfy all of our needs right now, it must not be love. That is not the Bible. Listen, you will never be able to get that person and the stuff that they do that you hate, you will never be able to get that off your mind if you refuse to act out of the will of God and the command for love on your life. But if, if you would just show commanded love, you would find the burden lifted and it would begin to roll away because I'm just telling you the Bible works. If you start really loving the person that you have a problem with, God will start rolling the trouble away off your mind, off your heart, off your emotions. Because biblical love brings freedom. And again, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, that sounds fine, but that person still doesn't deserve my love. I've already told you this. And you think that way because you cannot separate love from feelings. You can, and again, there is a type of love that is connected to feelings. It's just not the type of love the Bible commands you to do. So you can't separate them. That's, that's my whole point. of under, We have to understand our definitions. We have to understand what words mean so that we can get to what the Bible is telling us to do. And you can't separate love from feelings. And if it feels like I'm talking to you, trust me, I'm not. This is everywhere. We all deal with it. But let me remind you and me something about Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. 
Christ died for us. Listen, we have to do something with that verse, man. That verse isn't only applicable to us when we were sinners. Because since he showed that love to you, and you accepted it as your own, by your own free will, by the way, you've now been commanded to show it to others. In the best counseling verse there is in the Bible, Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Listen, you believe that verse or you don't. You put it in practice or you don't. And if you don't, let me just ask you, how come you can't do for somebody else what Jesus did for you? Because love and obedience go together. Or else real love doesn't exist at all. Not biblical love. And I'll say it again. If you don't agree with that last statement, it's because you've adopted the world's definition of love. You need to get back to the Bible. Because that is how love is defined in the Bible. James calls it the royal law. James 2.8, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. Royal means sovereign or preeminent. That is just a cool phrase, man. This is the royal law. This is the king's law. So James has no problem calling real love a regulation or a non-negotiable command. And you get to choose whether you're going to obey it or not. But there are consequences if you don't. That's, that is the thing about regulations. And maybe you don't even see them right away. So it's kind of like speeding. If you make it a habit of speeding, you may not get a ticket today or tomorrow or next week, but there's coming a day. It will eventually catch up to you well, that is the same with the Bible. If you don't spend time with the Lord or you don't obey his commandments, you may not even notice any discernible differences in your life or your relationships today or tomorrow, maybe not even next week. But if you make it a habit not to do it, there's coming a day. It will eventually catch up to you. And God isn't a cop just waiting for you to trip up. He's not sitting there running radar waiting for you to mess up. But when you decide to do it your own way, you take God out of the equation. And you're left with you now being the one in control. And when that happens, there's coming a day. I'm just saying, you know it's true. So now do you understand why this is the distinguishing mark of the Christian, like I, I mentioned at the beginning of the message? And, it, and just in case you were unaware... We know that this is a distinguishing mark of a Christian because that's what John 13, 35 says. Coming right off our main verse this morning, Jesus then said in John 13, 35, By this, by this love, shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. You see, it is a distinguishing mark because nobody else is able to do this. Not this way. So when you do, it identifies you as someone who loves Christ. And obviously, it's a good thing to be identified that way. It's like many things in this life. We can identify groups or people by specific characteristics. If you look on a person's hand, you can determine their marital status. You know whether someone is military or, or police or fire personnel by the, stipe, the, the type and the style of the uniform that they're wearing. 
Those are identifying marks so you can know at a glance where a person's coming from. Jesus says that his disciples will carry a mark. And the way that you should be able to tell a Christian at first glance is by his or her love. So let's fall in line. Because love is a command, not a feeling. And our feelings, therefore, need to be properly positioned and no longer used to solely define love. And when you talk about, uh, talk about love like this, um, again, we just continue to put it in the context of our feelings. We can't do that. When you talk about love, you've got to use command. When you talk about like, you can use feeling. When you talk about biblical love, you've got to use command. And when you do it, it will radically mark you out to the world. So first, biblical love is a non-negotiable command. You get to choose whether you're going to obey. You just don't get to negotiate the terms. The terms are what they are. You're going to do it or you're not going to do it. And the second, our second major point regarding great commandment love, is biblical love is a new command. And this one is interesting. Look back at our primary verse again, John 13, 34. He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So not only is biblical love a non-negotiable command, it's a new command, according to Jesus. And remember, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, kind of kicking off the New Testament. He's, this is still in a transition where things are changing. But he says it's a new commandment, and it, it is, is new in a number of ways. Uh, first off, this type of love is new with regard to its purpose. Because now, the purpose of a believer's love is to be a testimony before the world. That's how, you, you want to know how you love the world? Are we to love the lost world? Of course we are. You know the best way to do it? Love each other. And, th and that will be a great testimony to them. That's what John 13, 35 says. Now, again, that doesn't exempt you from being a speaking testimony, too. We've talked about that. We're not only to be living testimonies. The Bible is very clear that we are to boldly preach the gospel. That's how people get saved. It's very clear about that. But listen, don't ruin your speaking testimony because of how you live and how you treat each other, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids. Is that going to ruin your testimony to the world? Well, don't do it if it is. You know, that's what's new. In the Old Testament, their whole sacrificial system of law was to be the testimony before the world. They did what the law said. That was their testimony to the world. Well, now we're told our love is to be our testimony. Then second, it's new with regard to identity. You see, now the proof of a believer's love of God is love of others. Whereas in the Old Testament, if you were a genuine Israelite, you got circumcised and followed Abraham, you kept the Sabbath and obeyed Moses, Jesus says we're not using that criteria anymore. I'm giving you a new way to prove your identity. That's why verses in our New Testament, in the Pauline epistles, like Romans 13, 8, say, Owe oh, no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Paul said it this way to the Galatians, Galatians 5, 14, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, the new way is love. And again, not love like the world loves, love like Christ, sacrificial love that sets you apart. So if you are in Christ, love like him. And then third, it is new with regard to its power. 
And I say that because it is now provided through the supernatural power of the Holy Ghost. Okay, that, that wasn't available in the Old Testament. They didn't have that opportunity. So they couldn't love this way, the way we're talking about, because they didn't have the Holy Ghost inside them. And this is really good for us, because one thing most people think in a sermon like this is, yeah, that all sounds good, but I can't do it. I can't love like this. This is too advanced for me. And you know what? You are absolutely right. I agree with you 100%. I can't love like that either. That's why it takes us acknowledging and responding to the power made available through the Holy Ghost. That's what Romans 5, 5 says. And hope make it not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. All right, so now you have God's love in you, and you have the Holy Spirit in you. You can now apply that outward. Listen, it is because the Bible says it is, but you do have to acknowledge and then use it. The power to do this, th this type of love that seems so difficult, the power is available, but it comes from God. So when you're faced with loving someone you don't even really like at the time, that's when you have to depend upon the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's so important to consistently walk in the Spirit so you have immediate access to that power. And if you're not walking in the Spirit consistently and you're not spending time with the Lord, then again, you've placed yourself in control and there's coming a day. And you're not going to be able to do it. If you don't walk in the Spirit, forget about it. You won't love others like this. And when you don't other, love others like this, then according to the Bible, you're not loving God like the way He asked you to. And it's such a dangerous cycle we get ourselves into. But the point is, you don't have to live in that cycle. You can get out. You can love this way. You can have hope because you have a promise. You have the supernatural ability to serve another person all for the glory of God. Even if it's at your own expense. Now that's power, man. And then fourth, it is new with regard to its effects. It's new with regard to its effects. And this is important because it determines how close you get to God. 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4 says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Then down in verse 11, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. You see, refusal to love this way God, means that God will keep you blinded so that you won't even know which way you are to go in your own life. How crazy is that? That's a choice you've made, but you'll be in darkness. Like I said before, there are great consequences to not loving biblically. And that is our call, to love like God loves. And so a natural question to hearing all this, and I, I know it's a natural question that you have because it is a question that I have, is God, why do you make it so hard on us? And the only answer I have to that is because of the price he had to pay and the purpose that he desires to gain. 
And the price he had to pay was the life of his own son. And the purpose he desires to gain is for you to be brought into relationship with him and fellowship with him. He was meek, lowly, and humble and proved his love for us in obedience to, fa- to his father. I mean, again, he, he spent that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane and it, it says he, he sweat drops of blood. Listen, that's anguish. And, and it, that happened because the Bible says it happened. That is anguish. Not the, praying that this cup would pass. That he wouldn't have to do this. But he, he also prayed, not my will, but thine. So whatever it is. And he was meek and lowly and he proved his love for you. And he proved his love for me. How? In obedience to his father's non-negotiable command. Even saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive those who rejected me. Father, forgive those who reviled me. Father, forgive those who mocked me. Father, forgive those who crucified me. Father, forgive every person who will later believe on me. That was a steep price he paid for his bride, for his body. And just think about this for a second. How would it work in your home if you were giving it your all for your kids and you were providing perfectly and you were creating the best environment possible for them to thrive and yet one of your children says to another, I hate you, I can't stand you, I wish you were dead. And listen, now you're, I know some of you are like, well, that was my house this morning. I, were, you, were you peeking in on me or something? But the point is, when something like that happens in your house, you deal with it. Don't let your kids get away with that. You sit them down, you talk to them, you discipline them, whatever is necessary to get them to see the importance of your family. Well, guess what? God has a family. Everybody in here today who has made Jesus Christ their Lord is part of his family. You are part of his bride, you are part of his body. And he actually does provide perfectly for us. So he's saying you can't go around hating your siblings and expect me to keep on blessing you. You see, a lot of husbands and wives want God to solve their marriage problems. They will acknowledge that they have marriage problems. And they'll come into us for counseling, and they want God to solve them. But they're not willing to love biblically. And the bottom line is you can't get God's blessings on a relationship if you won't love this way. You come to us asking for help. We'll show you what the Bible has to say. We can't help you if you're not willing to then go out and do it. And he showed us how to do it. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. If you want to understand how you are to love, there's your pattern. It's Jesus. And I'm sorry, but it's sacrificial. It's obeying a command that includes a cost that comes out of a consecration. But when you do it this way, you can gain a confidence that even if others don't love you like the Bible tells them to, God will make it right with you. That's what we see with Jesus. 
and, and he obeyed his father's will. And he said, not mine, but thine. And three days later, God rose him up in power. And he now sits uh, on the right hand of his father, awaiting his return. Listen, his father treated Jesus right. He'll treat you right too. Because how do you know what kind of love this is and this kind of love that Jesus had? Listen to this. Right after telling his disciples about this love in John 13, 34, this new command love, look at the exchange Jesus has with Peter just three verses later. In verse 37, Peter, Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. You see, Jesus knew that his disciples, even his close ones, wouldn't love him back this way. He knew they would deny him. Earlier in the chapter, Judas was in the room and Jesus offered him the sop. And with that offer was an offer for Judas to repent and to come back into the fold. And when Judas rejects that offer, Jesus says, fine, do what you've got to do. In verse 27, and after the sop, Satan entered in unto, entered in unto him, obviously speaking about Judas. Then Jesus said unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Listen, he didn't stop him. He knew what Judas was going out to do. And he says, fine, do what you've got to do. Let's just get it over with. Let's do this. You see, even when you know somebody's turning on you, you still love them. You don't have to agree with what they're doing or like what they're doing, but you can still love them according to the Bible. You just have to desire the will of God, and you have to desire God's glory above your very life. Sorry, man, I, I don't like it either. Because again, that natural man is asking, I'm to love this way even when I know somebody is intentionally doing something to hurt me? Well, let me ask you, are you regularly doing something that you know hurts God? Do you want him to continue to love you? You do, and so do I. And so in one sense, while this love is impossible, on the other side, we know it can be done through him. And in that vein, it gives us the opportunity to be brought into the fellowship of his sufferings. Because when you love like Jesus, you're brought into the fellowship of his sufferings because that love is suffering. So let's get after it, and let's see what happens Let's put that old man away and think like the Bible tells us to think. And you be the one to start. Don't wait on the other person. This is a love that takes initiative. That's what 1 John 4, 19 says. We love him because he first loved us. He didn't wait for us to ask. It's not that we loved God, but he loved us first. We were out there sinning. God sent his son. God didn't say, well, when you start doing your part, then I'll do mine. And neither does this type of love. No, it says if you never do your part, 
here's what God would have me do for you. If you never change, here's what God would have me do for you. If you don't pay me back, here's what God would have me do for you. That's commandable, biblical love. Take the initiative. Start it out. If there's no payback, keep it going. If we did this, we could solve all our marriage and relationship problems. If you guys did this, we would have so much more time because we wouldn't have to hear you in counseling sessions. (laughs) And I don't mind. I I promise I don't. Because I have the same problems you have. But take the initiative and do it because the Bible tells you to do it. Listen, if the person doesn't pay you back, God will. That's why the Bible says in Romans 12, 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You see, we don't like that. This verse is a tough one for us. We want to help him repay. We at least want some input. Be a part of the process. Like, okay, we'll let God, you know, carry it out, but can we at least be consulted first? Can I give you my ideas? I have some thoughts on this repayment process. I think I, I, think I know some good things that you could do, Lord. But unfortunately, it can't be that way and still be biblical love. 1 John 3, verses 18 and 19 say, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You see, if you can't see biblical love, it's actually not there. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. That should be a comforting verse in the midst of a difficult message. We display a powerful public testimony by this mark. And it's time for us to take it seriously. Because Jesus has given the world the right to examine your credibility and see if you're real. And they see you're real when they see this kind of love, when they see God's love. And when they see it being displayed, even when loving is the last thing you want to do. That's the mark of a Christian. It's always visible. And it is a definitive thing because it's tied to a command. Can people tell you're a Christian by the way you love? Husbands, wives, children, parents. Listen, non-Christians may have a relative degree of this, non-christians cannot have all of what we've talked about this morning but any non-christian ought to examine your life and say how do you do that i don't that doesn't make sense to me and then you ought to tell them why there's something different about the way you love and tell them why you're concerned about obeying the will of god instead of just meeting your own needs And listen, I know this isn't easy. I know it won't be easy, but it's worth it. And it gives you an opportunity to display to God and others your faith. Because it's actually living what you say you believe. Because listen, let's be honest. For the most part, living our lives here in Northeast Ohio in 2019 doesn't take a lot of faith sometimes. If truth be told, we can get through most days without relying on faith well you can't if you're going to love like this 
So use it as an opportunity to live out your faith in a practical way. Believe God, take Him at His word, and then take the risk of loving somebody else, especially when they are being unlovely. And let's just see what happens in your life, in your family, and in this church. I'm going to pray. The praise team is going to come back up. We're going to close out our service with one final song. During that time, during that song, we'll be taking up our offering. But like I tell you, this is your time to commune with the Lord. And if there's something that you need to get right with Him this morning, would you do it? Use this time of worship to get back to where you need to be with the Lord. And then start loving God and loving others the way He has loved you. Dear Heavenly Father,